Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, December 7th, we are studying 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-14. to St. Peter ensures us that the Lord has not been slow in fulfilling his promise to return, but he is being patient in order that more would reach repentance. This reality of Christ's future return has implications for our lives as Christians right now. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Boisclair. Pastor Boisclair serves at Bethesda and Faith Lutheran Churches in North St. Louis County, Missouri. Pastor Boisclair, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Well, it's great. I've got, I've got my um, uh, trusty sword of the Spirit ready to sharpen. Amen. Looking forward to it, Pastor Boyce Claire. The reason that we are studying 2 Peter 3 this morning is because it is one of the appointed epistle readings for the season of Advent. This one is the appointed epistle reading for Series B, the second Sunday in Advent in that year. So it's not one that we're going to hear in worship this year, but it is one that we've heard in other years. Maybe just before we dig into the text itself, help us to understand why why a text like this is going to show up in the season of Advent. How does a text like this relate to the themes and, and what we hear about? every year in Advent? Well, as because Advent, of course, is the anticipation of the coming of the Lord, his first coming or his second coming, or as some have put it, his middle coming. The, fir- the first coming, of course, was his coming uh, in Bethlehem on the first Christmas. The middle coming, of course, is, is through word and sacrament. And the, the second coming is at the end of the world. And this is, this uh, a pericope is just jam-packed with uh, eschatological thoughts, uh, end-time doctrine for the people of God. Yeah, this this one is going to be very clearly focused on that second coming of Christ, and and yet Peter is going to draw implications for that to our lives today. You know, because this is what we're waiting for, what now? That's going to be one of the, the big questions that he's going to answer. Now, Pastor Boisclair, this is a text from Second Peter. It's toward the end of the epistle, and we don't have time to, to do a ton of background work on Second Peter, but can you at least try to give us a, a flavor of what he's been doing this epistle and a little bit of the context leading up to the verses that we're going to hear today. What what do we need to know about what Peter's been saying that helps us understand what we're reading today? Well, um, he is is preparing uh, his readers and, and listeners for the uh, second coming of the Lord. And he really, uh, em- he really uh, ties in on uh, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Lord. Uh, so, so in other words, uh, he, it, 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 in talking in his theology, um, proper sense, uh, the study of God, uh, he, he's, he's really directing them to our Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and God, of course, one person of the Holy Trinity. And, and ha- it has the idea that it is he who is going to come at the end of the world and he who is going to judge, judge the world. And, and um, you know, it, it, it's, it's like uh, you have 
law and gospel in in the person of Christ. You know, you have him executing uh, judgment and and bringing uh, all time to an end, but then also uh, saving his people, those who trust in, and those who loved his appearing, as the apostle Paul tells us. You, you mentioned that law and gospel in the person of Christ. How do we see that particularly when it comes to the second coming? How is Christ's second coming? How does that function both as law and gospel? He is, he, of course, he is incarnate. He's one of us. So, so uh, those of us who have trusted in him and, and believed in his gospel and his promise of return or, or of coming uh, have uh, him, our Lord, who is, his, is the judge. And it's one of us. So, you know, it's one of us who, as as uh, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says, who's not unacquainted with our weaknesses and our sufferings and, and trials and everything. But he's he, uh, you know, is basically is the merciful judge. But he is he is that doesn't mean he's a milk toast. That doesn't mean he's going to turn a blind eye on sin and um, and disobedience, uh, because it says that there will be a separation between uh, whereas, as one theologian put it, is that it's the final separation of law and gospel, because for those on the left hand who are, are not going to be uh, with the Lord after after the end of the world, uh, that's where they will have the law, and that's it. And then for those on the right hand uh, who are received into his kingdom and into eternal life, there is only the gospel. You know, we've been reading a lot of the Old Testament recently on sharper iron, and and this use of you know Christ's second coming as law and gospel, and even with the language that Peter's going to use as he talks about this this day of the Lord, that's a phrase Peter will use. It's a phrase that we see so often in the Old Testament, and and that phrase the day of the Lord functions with both law and gospel in the Old Testament. There's a, a passage in the book of Amos where the prophet says, you know, why are you looking forward to it? Because it's going to be a day of judgment for you because you don't really trust in the Lord. You're you're just trusting in your own works, in these empty rituals that you're doing. And so, you know, for those who don't trust in the Lord, there is the function of the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ as law. But as you said, for those who love the Lord's appearing, for, for those who have forsaken the trust in their own works and have placed all their hope in Christ, that day is a day to to yearn for, to long for, to to look for with great expectation and with certain hope that it that it is coming and on that day our Lord will rescue us. And so yeah, the beautiful, beautiful description there of the law and the gospel in the person of Christ, particularly in his second coming. What one thing that I, I think is helpful to remember when it comes to the letter of Second Peter just as as way of introduction to this text, is that he he talks a lot about false teachers in this letter. Chapter 2, when we studied this letter on Sharper Iron a little while ago, it's, it's probably been, I don't know exactly how long now, but chapter 2 uses some really vivid imagery for for these false teachers. And in chapter 3, he, he lays out particularly one of the false teachings that's out there, these people who are doubting that the Lord's actually going to come. And, and they say, look, he's been gone so long, it's not going to happen. And Peter's already brought up other examples, particularly what happens with the the flood. Uh, and now he's going to keep talking about that. That's kind of the introduction to this text when it comes to the timing of the Lord's coming. That's going to be a big part of that. Any more introductory material on Second Peter and what we've got here today before we jump into this text? For for the pastors that are listening, they will notice if they if they look at the Greek that Second Peter is some really difficult Greek, 
It's some really, uh, you know, it, it, whereas you might read uh, the uh, epistles of John and, and the, the gospel of John is, is, uh, is easy Greek. This is hard Greek. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, the thing is, is, is but you have in this, uh, book, you, uh, you know, you have the, the statement, uh, probably the most radical statement of God's mercy. And that's in our, that'll be in our uh, text for today. Mm, all right. So we're going to see a radical statement of God's mercy here, even though it's difficult Greek, we're going to get through it. We'll be reading from the ESV here on Sharper Iron. We're reading second Peter three verses eight through 14 this morning. Peter writes, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him and with, without spot or blemish and at peace. That's our text for today. That is 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 14. Again, that is the Advent epistle for the second Sunday in Advent in series B of the three-year lectionary. Pastor Boyce Claire, before we dig into specifics of these verses, just give me your, your overall impression. What's Peter doing here in this short text? Well, he's he's obviously he's preaching law and gospel, uh, very very heavy law. I mean, uh, the the whole universe is going to be destroyed or or whatever. It, it you know even as some have even pointed out that uh, it even speaks about it at a atomic level that the, like the elements are dissolving and melting with the fervent heat, and and so the end of the end is near and the world will be. Uh, brought to the day of reckoning or you know the and and so there there's no escape from any any of that but then he he gives god's uh gospel his 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 uh, pure his his 100 percent uh forgiveness of sins uh that he is not willing that any should perish uh and that's that's a very uh, good passage to to uh deal with anybody who might say that uh, anybody's damnation is a result of God's election, because it certainly isn't. Uh, I think that's pro- whenever we talk about the doctrine of election, I think it should be clear that God's election of grace, which is people to salvation, has nothing whatsoever to do with anyone's damnation. Yeah, that's right. That's that's a very key verse when we when we speak about the doctrine of election. I'm looking forward to digging into that verse with you. So our our text starts with verse eight, and and Peter again in this context of those who are denying that Christ will ever come because he hasn't come for so long, so he must not be coming at all. 
he's going to, to talk a little bit about the timing of God. And so he says, don't overlook this one fact. And he calls them beloved. I, you know, I, I love how Peter and John speaks this way. Paul will speak this way. You, you know that he loves the people to whom he's writing. Maybe before we just dig into the, what he's writing to them, just that fact, Pastor Boyce Claire, it, it's, a, it's a good reminder that, that the apostles, when they write these epistles, are, are writing to people they love. These are Christians, and they desire these Christians to have the true doctrine, ultimately, and think in Peter's case, so that he knows he'll see them on the last day standing there in glory. That's I don't I don't want to skip over that fact too quickly that they are the beloved ones to whom he's writing. Yes, uh, when I was ordained, my my uh, the the man my pastor who ordained me uh, forty years ago said, no matter what you go through with your people, no matter what. Uh, challenges you have, no matter how challenging people are to you, always love them. Always have got Christ's love, love them through you. And and that's that's so vital when you are a a, a called minister of Christ that that you love the people that you are serving, all of them, even the ones that are, uh, you know, are some as some have called them sandpaper Christians uh, because they kind of they they actually make you smoother by being uh, sandpaper. That uh, a brother a brother pastor of mine made that up. He was into woodworking. He said that the, the people in his congregation that were you know maybe posing a little problem for him were uh, sandpaper Christians, and and all it did was made him smoother and 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 uh, cause him to love them more. Mm. Well, and, and the reason that a pastor can love his congregation and the reason that, that Christians can love each other within that congregation is because that word beloved is not only describing, I think it's not only describing Peter's love for the people to whom he's writing, but even before that, it's describing the fact that these are the beloved ones of God, which it, again, you know, in, in right. the context of what Peter's saying, for these people to know you're the beloved ones of God, I think it really helps them to to hear these words in the right way so that it builds up their faith rather than just absolutely terrifies them. Right. And and it's the it's the it's the verb the Greek verb agapao or agapetos uh which is is that uh selfless love that comes only from God. Um you know there there Greek has at least three or four uh, words for love and this one this one in in classical greek was kind of didn't have much of a uh, di- didn't really have much uh, depth of meaning and and that is the one the holy spirit la- uh, latched upon to uh, basically declare to the world god's love in christ so this is what this is to whom Peter's writing is the beloved ones of God. And he says, here's this one fact. You can't overlook this. And the fact that he gives is that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Pastor Boyce Claire, what is what does that mean? What is this one fact Peter wants these people to know? That uh, God, of course, is timeless. He's he's apart. He is above time. Um, he exists in a realm uh, outside of time. And, uh, and uh, you know, the psalmist, of course, I think it's Moses' psalm in Psalm 90, is, uh, a, th- a thousand years is like our as yesterday when it is past. Uh, what's it, rather interesting about that expression of a thousand years, if you study scripture, you know that uh, no human being is said in scripture to have lived 
uh, to a thousand years. Methuselah, who is has the oldest or longest number of years, and and of course it's like in a in it went, the year is not a solar year; it's a, a lunar year. And it, it, instead of 365.25 um, uh, days in a year, they the lunar year had 354 uh, days. Uh, but that didn't make much difference. But anyway, uh, Methuselah only lived 969 years, which is uh, uh, 21 years uh, uh, less or shy of, uh, uh, or actually 31 years shy of uh, a thousand. So, um, you know, in, in, in a sense, it's like all, the, when he talks about a thousand years, all of the time that could possibly encompass one human life. And so uh, what he's saying here is that uh, with God, it doesn't matter uh, whether, you know, that in other words, um, God's aware of what, how time is passing, but, but with him, uh, you know, it's like only yesterday for a thousand years. And, and it doesn't mean to give people ideas that uh, the world, that the Bible is teaching that the world was created in uh, four and a half billion years or something like that. Now, I'm not saying that we have to be uh, tied down to any specific uh, number, like maybe six or 7,000 years or whatever, but uh, it, 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 it really, um, all it's saying is that with God, there is no time. He is timeless. Well, okay, and so I appreciate that on, on a couple of levels, Pastor Boyce-Claire. One, you've, you've given us the, the meaning here in Second Peter 3, that, that the Lord is outside of time. The way that time works for us is not the same way that it works for him. So, so don't try to impose, you know, our definitions upon him. And the fact that a thousand years is chosen, you know, is, is on purpose such that no human being ever lived that long. So we're definitely talking about a divine thing that we're talking about. And then I, I do appreciate that, that comment about we don't want to take Second Peter 3, verse 8, that says a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day, and then try to use that as an interpretive key in other passages that the word day may show up or a thousand years may show up and use that in every single place. And and you you put your finger on the one that usually comes up is is there in Genesis chapter 1, where this passage will sometimes be used to say, well, look, one day can be a thousand years for God, and so we've got one day in the book of Genesis, so that must be a thousand years, or however long I really want it to be, I suppose, is how often it's it's used. Can, and, and again, not to get us too far afield, but I think that's that's worth pointing out, because that is a way that this verse will get misused sometimes. Why shouldn't we do that? <laughs> Why is it wrong to take what Peter says here and apply that in that way to Genesis chapter 1? Well, because he's it's talking about apples and oranges uh, there, you know, uh, however time is to the, the, the Lord it is not the issue. He is revealing in his word that it uh, it took six days. Uh, that's that's the creation also of the week and of the Sabbath. And and so uh, that's for us. You know, in other words, it isn't a thousand years to me. It's a it's uh, a, a, a day to you. Uh, one of the other problems too is is the the great uh, millennia what we call the millennialist idea that 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 kind of uh, raises flags too that we need to watch out for uh, the belief in this uh, thousand year reign of Christ on Earth which uh, Scripture does not teach. Mm, yeah, and that number one thousand, the fact that this is the number that's used, as you mentioned, it shows up in Psalm ninety. And it also shows up in the book of Revelation in, in context where it's not necessarily meant to be taken as 
1,000 years precisely, and, and what well, are we talking, lunar calendar or solar calendar, as you said? No, that, that's not the point. This is a, an amount of time that's unattainable to humans. It's a divine amount of time. It's a complete amount of time. And so, again, to, to try to yep. use this as some sort of math formula, that's not the purpose that Peter's giving here. Rather, he's saying— I think you— Go ahead. You've hammered it. You, you've uh, hammered it home right there. Yes, that's exactly the proper understanding of that. Yes. So Peter's point is that, you know, look, beloved, here's the thing. These, these false teachers who are saying the Lord has taken too long, so he must not be coming, they, they're misunderstanding. And I don't want you to misunderstand how the Lord works with time. Time is, is not something that he is bound by like you and I are. And then he, he elaborates on this in the verse 9, and he, he mentions the Lord being slow. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. Rather, he's patient. Take, take us into verse 9, and, and this is where we really get into that full-fledged gospel that you were talking about earlier. Yes. Um, the, he, it, it's a, he's not slow, and then the promise, of course, is the promise of his coming. And... Um, uh, you know, it says, uh, I think the commentator says that it isn't for the scoffer that that says um, that where is the promise of his coming, uh, but rather it is of maybe some fellow Christians that are uh, somewhat, uh, you know, confused and, and concerned about the fact that it's taking so long, you might say, uh, for, you know, or, or at least to people uh, that it, because, again, they're they're in their own time time frame. Uh, but but uh, that it, it basically what if there is a person who will live a thousand years from now that uh, that will come to the Lord? Uh, don't you want that person to be part of uh, uh, God's uh, kingdom of glory? Uh, so so he he, of course, knows all his elect, all of the church that will live in the future. And, and uh, you know, he's not going to rush things because he wants to wants them to be brought into his kingdom. So the, the Lord's slowness, or what we would count as slowness, is in fact not slowness at all, but it is his right. patience. And, and that in that yep. patience, that's him working out what his desire actually is. And this is where, I mean, this is such good news. God doesn't desire people to perish. He desires people that would he desires that people would be brought to repentance. Exactly. And uh, you know, as I said, it's the most radical statement of God's um, God's mercy in Christ. Uh, Saint, P uh, Saint Paul says uh, he would have all men to all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But this is sort of like covering the other other side of the angle. How about those that are uh, that don't uh, reach uh, repentance? Uh, he he does does not uh, desire them to be lost. And it's interesting in in Calvinistic thought, uh, the idea is whenever the gospel is preached in the church, that God doesn't mean all people when he's preaching that gospel or when when uh, this pastor or the preacher is preaching that gospel, uh, that, uh, you know, he, he only, he's only serious about it to those who who he has chosen to be saved. Uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that when God's gospel is uh, is preached, it's preached with all of the seriousness, all of the power of God's Holy Spirit uh, for anyone to be saved. As it says, uh, uh, you know, whoever will believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And, and that is what we call 
uh, universal grace. So this this verse, verse 9, mediates us or keeps us from a false teaching of what we might call double predestination. So double predestination would be the teaching that God elects, he chooses some to be saved, and God chooses, he elects others to be damned. And 2 Peter 3, verse 9 very clearly shows us that God does not elect people to be damned. He does not desire anyone to spend eternity apart from him. Rather, he desires that everyone would be saved. And so we we would, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that, Pastor Boyce Claire. We we would teach single predestination. What What is the true scriptural teaching on this matter of election? Since, uh, as we believe, teach, and confess that we are saved by grace alone, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, that supporting that teaching goes or dovetailing with it uh, is God also the teaching that uh, God uh, that to God's people as the gospel is proclaimed to them they should be said God has chose you chose you before the foundation of the world uh, uh, to be saved and and uh, any anytime you are uh, sharing the gospel and someone confesses that they believe the gospel they believe in Christ then you can assure them that they have been chosen to be saved because God chooses them through the preaching of the word and the sacraments. So if you find yourself in church on a Sunday and listening to the gospel and, and trusting in it and rejoicing in it, then also you, you should also believe and have faith in your own election. But then the other point that I think needs to be made is that that election has nothing to do with people going to hell see the, the the other side sometimes they have two ways of doing it either they you can choose people you know calvin said that god chooses people to be saved and he chooses people to be damned but then there were others that uh kind of said that's a little too harsh so what we'll say is uh, if you take all the people and god chooses a certain number to be saved he just passes by the others and that that is a false doctrine as well uh, you know, God's election has nothing to do with anybody going to hell. Right. This is a the teaching of election is meant to comfort and and not to not to terrify it. And so that right. Anytime we talk about election, we're talking about God's choosing His saving by grace. And that's that's Peter's point here is that the Lord has this desire to save more by grace. And so he is patient with the Lord's second coming. This waiting is not him being slow, but it is him working out that desire of his, his will to save sinners in Christ Jesus. And we will pick up more of this text from 2 Peter 3 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking with Pastor David Boisclair this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, December 7th. We're studying 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 14 with Pastor David Boisclair. He serves at Bethesda and Faith Lutheran Churches in North St. Louis County, Missouri. Pastor Boisclair, prior to the break, we're looking at verse 9, this radical statement of the gospel, as you said, that the Lord desires that all would be saved and reach repentance. And we talked about, you know, this election by grace, that those who are saved are saved completely by God's grace. And that's that's all we're going to say. That has nothing to do with why people are damned. And I think we should be careful here as we look at this verse. You know, it says God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance but that doesn't mean that all will reach repentance, does it? No, because when God uh, comes to us through the God, when God the Holy Spirit works in our hearts through the gospel, he comes in a way in which he can be resisted. That's another difference that we have with the Calvinists who said that there is irresistible grace, that people have no choice. If they're the elect, they will be saved whether they like it or not, and they will be forced to be saved. That is the doctrine of irresistible grace. We do not teach that. Christ uh, said uh, as he entered Jerusalem, uh, you know, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how I would have longed to gather your children uh, uh, as a hen gathers its brood under its wings, but you were not willing. So God is certainly willing for all people to be saved, but there are some, unfortunately, tragically, that are not willing that they be saved. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis put it this way, you know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done, but on the last day, when, when uh, those who are uh, going to, not going to go into eternal life, but going into eternal judgment and, and hell, that uh, God will say to them, your will be done. Got so it. that's kind of the the explanation. And we know we know for a fact that as scripture says, there's only a few that are going to be saved. As Jesus says, you know, uh, have good cheer, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You know, so unfortunately, there's a remnant maybe of all of the people of the world. Now, we're not going to speculate on who it who it is, because only God knows exactly who who is going to be saved and, and who ultimately does not is not saved. But uh you know, it is possible for a person to uh, harden their hearts and turn away from the Lord and not believe. And and that, again, is not because of the Lord's desire or doing, but that is their own fault. That's their own will. Some, right. I mean, this, is, this is one of those questions in, in theology. I think this one is called the crux teologorum, the cross of theologians, because as much as we'd like to resolve it with an answer that, that makes perfect sense in our minds— Scripture gives the answer that it gives, and, and that's what we confess. You know, why are some saved? Because God has chosen them and saved them completely by his grace. That's his election at work to save sinners. Why are some not saved? That's because that was their own desire. They chose that for themselves, and that's their fault. And and to put those two answers side by right. side doesn't seem to make sense in our own minds, but that's the answer that Scripture gives, and so that's what we as Christians must confess. Exactly. I think, you know, you've, you've pointed that out very clearly. Uh, Martin Luther, of course, said that uh, that is something that will be revealed to us in the life to come, in the light of glory, Luther calls it. He talked about the light of nature, the light of grace, and the light of glory. And the light of glory is where we will have all of those questions answered for us. 
That's right. Or or the answer won't matter, perhaps, and so we'll we'll be satisfied <laughs> with with just being with the Lord. That's right. Yeah, and and I think you know just thinking about that mystery. I mean, to to keep it in the context here of Second Peter three. The Lord's desire and his delaying of the return of Christ is his patience so that more would be brought to repentance. That adds not panic, but an urgency to the church's work. That that what great joy is ours to preach that gospel, knowing that wherever that gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit is at work to bring people to faith in Christ. And and what joy it is for us as Christians to, to be ab- about that work, to be a part of that work that the Lord is doing in this time, however long it lasts, before his return, to speak that gospel to people so that they too, through the work of the Holy Spirit, might join us in that faith and then in that joy in the last day. Yes, it's a matter of life and death, and that's and, and, it, and it's, it's a very great urgency. You know, again, uh, you know, I think maybe one of the things that we have to um, uh protect ourselves from is the idea that, uh, well, uh, you know, God isn't converting people because I'm not getting out there, the church isn't doing enough for missions. You know, again, you do not uh, say that, uh, basically think that your actions are, you know, would determine something that vital. It's just that God says, um, you know, the uh, the harvest is full and, and pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. So so the thing is, you've got the pre, the the reminder that that this is urgent, that now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is our salvation closer than w- than when we first came to faith. And and uh, that's that's an urgency that's placed upon the people of God. And, and it's just it shouldn't be a club to knock us over the head, but it should be uh, sort of a goad and uh, uh, to get us to uh, doing the work of the Lord. Right. And I, yeah, I appreciate that because it's it's not like you said, it's not a club to, to just push us out in there sort of unwilling. But there's there's also a promise there, too. The fact that Jesus talks about the harvest, you know, he, he's he's saying, look, there's the harvest out there. Go get it. That's that's a promise. You know, why? Why is there a harvest out there? Because Jesus died and rose for those people and, and because he's the one who's at yeah. work to bring it in. And there's that. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, go do this. It is urgent. But but what a promise that it you know it doesn't finally depend on how well I can speak or or how well you can preach, but it depends ultimately and only upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And that I mean that promise should always be in our minds as Christians when we when we go about these work this work of mission. Yes. Yeah. So Pastor Boyce Claire, the the text continues. Peter mentions the day of the Lord. He he says it in verse ten. We talked. I mentioned that brief briefly at the beginning. He says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. This is an image that our Lord Himself uses. What does that mean? What's the point of comparison between the day of the Lord and the thief? And guess what? We need to watch out how we look, how we apply this passage. That's right. Um, it, it, the Lord, well, in in the um, in the Gospels, our Lord Jesus says that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Uh, the the idea here is one of uh, unexpectedness. It has nothing to do with the doctrine of the rapturists who say that uh, the that uh, there's going the next thing that's going to happen in the in uh, sacred history is that there's going to be a rapture that people are going to be taken out of planes and they're going to crash or whatever <laughs> or out of automobiles and and because it says that the lord is coming as a thief secretly 
or in in a stealthy way that's not what that that's not what that says it, it, the the our our end time theology and the biblical end time theology is very simple the thing that we're looking forward to is the last day itself uh, that's when he's going to come and it's going to come like a thief unexpectedly and that's the that's the whole idea by that um, analogy that is a very important point pastor Boyce Claire and and one that we should make sure we're paying attention to the scriptures anytime there's an image used like this. We want to be careful to make sure we're applying that image in the way that the scriptures apply it. And as, as you said, there are a lot of points of comparison, I suppose, you could make to a thief. And, and the two that you're bringing out, one would be the secretiveness. That would be the way that those who, who hold to premillennial dispensationalists, they would take it that way. You're saying, and I agree with you, because of the context and because of what we know our Lord says elsewhere, the real point of comparison is not the secret nature of the thief, but the unexpected nature of the thief. And and I think, again, the context plays this out, both in what our Lord says in the Gospels when he uses his image, but then the way St. Peter continues. After Peter says the day of the Lord was going to come like a thief, he talks about heavens passing away with a roar. He talks about heavenly bodies being burned up. He talks about the earth and everything being exposed. None of that is secret in nature. All of that is very, very public. And so the, the very context of 2 Peter 3 invites us to reject the, the teaching that this is a secret coming, but rather to go with what you're saying, this is an unexpected coming when all of this is going to happen. Yes, and and you you it's really dramatic, isn't it? It's not, it's yeah. a cataclysm. It's like a, a like a, a universal cataclysm. Uh, 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 the um, Greek words, according to uh, R. C. H. Lenski, who was was basically the the uh, uh, exegete that we used when I went to seminary, a cracking crash. Uh, you know, a a loud roar will pass away with a roar, um, and. Um, then and then and and then the heavenly body, or rather the um, uh, the the elements will be dissolved. Um, and 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 um, I think there's there there's a difference in in the text there at, at the bottom of ten where it says they will be exposed or will they will not be actually it will not be or will be found. I guess yeah that it's mm-hmm. no it says not be found. Uh, so in other words, there's no, not going to be an earth anymore, not any works, or not the old earth anymore. And, and um, it's kind of interesting. There's different, differing views on what's going to happen after the last day or what, what will happen to uh, our, our, the universe after the last day. Well, what, what are some of those differing views, Pastor Boyce Clear? Well, uh, as Martin, Martin Luther and, 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 of course, probably many I believe is that the form of this world will pass away. You know, everything, the universe will remain. Uh, it'll just, it'll just be, uh, things will be different. Uh, in the form of this world will pass away. You won't have like, um, there won't be sin in the world anymore. Um, but then the other, the other view is that there will be a, com- a complete destruction of the universe. And then there will be, you know, a totally new heavens and earth. You know, because it's talking about really an obliteration or an uh, annihilation of all um, all the universe and and just uh, starting over again from scratch. Hmm. But that's those are the two views. 
My, I guess my mind has always gone toward more of the, the former, the first one that you said. And, and the reason is, is because of what the way Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about the resurrection of the body. And he talks about the, the corruptible putting on the incorruptible, the mortal putting on immortality. That, that on the one hand, there's a, a great discontinuity between the body that I have right now and the body that I will have in the resurrection. It, that body can't die. That body can't grow old or, or be corrupt. And yet at the same time, there is a continuity because it is my body that he's going to, to raise from the dead. You know, it's Job's confession that in these eyes are going to see him face to face. And so I, I guess— And not another. And not and another. Not another. That's my, right. Th- these eyes and not another. You know, in other words, it's going to be me who's seeing it happen. Right. And when so, I'm raised from the dead. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess, I mean, with those, which I, I would consider pretty clear passages concerning what the resurrection of my body is going to be like, then it, it seems to to fit the, that first explanation that you gave about that, you know, it's, it's going to be a, I can't remember precisely how you said it now, but it's it's rather than a complete dissolution and something brand new, there, there are both of those elements. There's the discontinuity, because it's going to be a, a heavens and an earth that doesn't have any sin or corruption in it anymore. But it is, you know, this—he's like, he's re recreating it or renewing it, I think, is the way that I've often tried to explain it in my own talking and thinking about it. I, I Yes, and I think that there's other passages of Scripture that point in that direction. And and it, it just—it's going to be uh, just— uh, you know, really remarkable, um, you know, shocking um, end to to it's it's an end of time itself. Time time began when uh, when sin began, or or you could no, I guess you could say time began when the world was created or the yeah. universe was created. But this this is going to bring it bring time to an end, and then we will you know be in the kingdom of glory, which will be something altogether different. Right, right. Now, now that again, that's it's going to be a, a cataclysmic event. It's going to be quite the the thing to behold, no doubt. But given the way Peter writes about it, but that future event, whenever it may happen, Peter's going to take and say this this makes a difference for you as a Christian right now. So he he says in verse eleven, since all these things are are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? And he mentions particularly lives of holiness and godliness, and then waiting for. Take us into how Peter now is going to take that future event and apply it to, like, what this means for our lives as Christians today. It's a a beautiful uh, application. Um, You know, I mean, uh, the commentators say usually the the word that's used there kind of means a, a, a question. You know, what sort of people ought you to be? You know, it's more of an exclamation, they say. You know, uh, you know, uh, you know, what sort of what sort of people then uh, would you be if if you were facing such a uh, a catastrophic uh, change like this or, you know, that that you're facing God manifesting himself and, and uh, bringing the world to an end, you know, uh, and, and sort of like it, it, there again, there is the urgency, isn't there, that that, uh, you know, uh, we need to we need to hear the word of the Lord and and to um, by the grace of God's Holy Spirit repent of our sins and 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 be as the Lord would want us. In terms of in verse twelve, Paul or sorry not Paul Peter says you know waiting for and then says hastening the coming of the day of God. How 
what is what does that mean? It doesn't seem like like anything you or I could do could make Christ come quicker. So what does that mean that we would hasten his coming? Well, it, uh, the other another translation of that would be waiting for and desiring earnestly. Mm. So, so I mean, in other words, uh, you know, like you, you might want to maybe some you're expecting something wonderful tomorrow. So you should say, oh, you know, oh, I wish this day were over so I could could have uh, the good things of tomorrow. Um, it, it's sort of like, a, you know, it, basically the, the word is uh, that they, you desire it earnestly. Uh, and that's that's the idea. Hastening it for me, you know, probably the best way to get time to uh, pass is to is to busy yourself and not sit there and, and <laughs> with your uh, twiddling your thumbs. Well, and, and the way you, you phrased it there, hastening it for me, reminds me of the way that Luther explains the first several petitions of the, the Lord's Prayer. And I think particularly in this case, we would think of the petition your thy kingdom come and you know that it's not that it's not that my praying is going to make god's kingdom come i i can't cause that to happen he his kingdom's going to come because he's god he's going to bring his kingdom when he desires but but i should pray that god would bring his kingdom to me and i i think that that the way luther explains the second petition there fits in with the way you're explaining second peter three almost most especially yes exactly Right. So and we, and, and this is this is such a perfect uh, application. I mean, uh, Peter Peter was a good pastor. <laughs> yes. That's right. That's right. So so every time we pray, Thy kingdom come. That's an opportunity. And how often you know do we say the Lord's prayer, whether in church or in our personal devotional lives? You know, when we pray, Thy kingdom come. Here's an opportunity to take to heart what Peter is is saying here in chapter three. Sometimes I, I think, you know, with all of the, the various tasks that we do have to do as, as Christians in this life, all of the places for service that God gives us, and, and we, we, you know, we engross ourselves in those things, and that's not wrong, but I, I think sometimes it is easy to, to forget that, that focus on the last day and that constant prayer, thy kingdom come, that's the goal, that as, as we wait, as we engage in these lives of holiness and godliness— we're always looking forward to that kingdom. And, and sometimes in the, the day-to-day activities, we lose sight of that. And, and I, I love the way that, that Peter puts those two things together for us. And I think it's something that, that we can really start to reclaim as Christians you know, in our lives today. And what's neat about it is that it brings it home to us. You know, uh, science, I, I always found science fascinating, what I could, would consider not pseudoscience, but true science. Um, and but but if you stick to the science, a lot of times it doesn't it talks about the universe. It talks about the way things are, but it doesn't it doesn't uh, really uh, come personally down to me. And here you have God, who is the creator of the universe and all the powers that are at work there is bringing this home to 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 us as his people uh, even as as we're we are told in ephesians that that christ is placed as the head of the church uh and and the head of the universe in for the sake of the church for the sake of his people and all of this the only reason why god keeps the the universe going is for believers for the church mm. Now, as, as Peter continues into the rest of verse 12 and into verse 13, he comes back to the topic that we've touched on briefly already, this matter of what's going to happen on the day of God. He, he speaks of the heavens being set on fire and dissolved, 
heavenly bodies melting because the fire is so hot. And then the promise there, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. What's what's Peter saying there as he talks again about the day of God, the dissolution of this creation, and or and then the renewal of this creation on the last day? That's That's our pure Christian hope that we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which there will be no more sin, no more death, no more destruction, no more evil. No, uh, it, it will be God's peaceable kingdom in which all exist in, in his light. There will not be a need for a temple or for a church anymore because God will be living among us. Um, he, he, um, as I say, it's just the, the home of righteousness or where righteousness dwells and, and, and where there is no injustice, where there is no pain, where there is no tears. He shall wipe away all tears. Uh, it's just such a, a beautiful, beautiful prospect for the believer. I love the way you connected that verse to the way that St. John describes eternity in the book of Revelation, because I think, you know, in which righteousness dwells or the home of righteousness, it seems like it's just a, such a short phrase. But when you, you think about the way St. John describes what that'll be like, I mean, that's that's the fullness of that phrase, the righteous in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're longing for. Where, where not only our bodies are made incorruptible and immortal, as, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, but the whole creation is is the place in which God's righteousness dwells. And, and what, a, what, a, what a hope that is. And again, not just a hope of wishful thinking, but this is a, a certain expectation. Pastor Boisclair, then take us into to verse 14, the, what, how Peter finally applies all this. Yes, uh, he's, he's basically... Uh, you know, it's interesting if you look at Second um, Peter chapter uh, two, verse thirteen. It says, um, "Okay, uh, it says they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Uh, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you." Th- those are the two words in the negative uh, instance that are used here. In other words, the those who are not blots and those who are not blemishes. So, so it's interesting that, that there are those who are the unbelievers by their own fault that are blots and blemishes. And now the people of God are to be uh, without uh, blo- uh, spots and without blemishes. What, what strikes me about these two passages, or this, this last verse, is that what seems like perhaps a contrast on the one hand, you know, he says, while you're waiting, be diligent to do this, right? To be diligent to be found without spot or blemish, but also be at peace. And I, I think that's, you know, that's a, a great description of the Christian life. We are to be diligent in our lives as Christians. So we are to seek after God's kingdom and his righteousness. And yet at the same time, we're at peace. We, we know that none of this depends upon us, but it all depends on what our Lord Jesus Christ. And and the way Peter puts those together here, the diligence of the Christian faith, at the same time, the peace of the Christian faith, it's a, a beautiful connection. The only way we can be good people in the sight of God is for us to be regenerated, reborn by the power of God's Holy Spirit through holy baptism and through the hearing of the gospel. And then and only then and only then can we be uh, without blemish or without spot. Uh, and and it, and and basically it's 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 by the grace of God that we uh, desire to 
uh, become holy through his word. Because it, as Luther says uh, in the large catechism, is what, what, does it, what is it that makes things or people holy? It is the word of God. And, and so that means that we should be uh, diligent in, in reading, studying, hearing, um, and, and teaching the word of God. Pastor Boisclair, we have about three minutes left on the morning. Reflecting on this text from 2 Peter 3 and its place in Advent, help us to see in this text the good news, the hope that we have of our coming Savior, Jesus Christ. In, in the same way as the Old Testament uh, people of God awaited uh, for the coming of the Savior uh, at Christmas time, so also Advent is a time in which we are prepared and we're expect we are lovingly expecting the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the world. And, and so it's, it's kind of like, um, and oftentimes in scripture where there, where Christ talks about the end of the world, he, he sort of coupled it with the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. You know, the destruction of Jerusalem is like the end of the world. Well, like waiting for the coming, the first coming of our Lord is, is similar to waiting for his second coming, although he's not going to come in the same way. He's going to come in, in judgment to, uh, of course, to bring his people into everlasting life and, and those who have not believed into everlasting condemnation. Pastor David Boisclair is pastor at Bethesda and Faith Lutheran Churches in North St. Louis County, Missouri, helping us today with 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 14. Pastor Boisclair, thanks for being our guest today. It's, it is my pleasure, and, and I hope the people of God are blessed this Advent season. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Do not overlook this fact, beloved. The Lord is coming. He's coming soon. Don't count his patience as slowness. Count it as his love for sinners to bring them to repentance with you on the last day forever. If you have any questions about this text or any other Advent epistles, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.